0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today, I have Dr. Ellen Lamont, Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at Appalachian State University. Welcome, Dr. Lamont. Thank you for having me. Today, we are discussing The Mating Game, How Gender Still Shapes How We Date, published in 2020 by University of California Press. So, Dr. Lamont, uh, what resulted in you pursuing this research on gender?
0: Well, well, I knew that I wanted to write my dissertation on something related to gender and family. I wasn't quite sure what, Uh, but that was around the time that I got engaged to get married. And what happened was that it was much more of a negotiation type of um, engagement where we had a conversation, we made plans for. Uh, when we would get married. Um, and then we considered ourselves engaged. And there's a lot of pushback to that uh, in the sense that people were kind of saying, well, that's not real. You didn't, you're not really engaged. Um, he hasn't asked you, so you're not engaged. Um, and also that, that it wasn't going to work out uh, because I had pressured him into getting married by talking to him about what I wanted as well. And so that was really interesting to me to hear that really strong pushback to that. Um, And so I felt like there are these kind of competing messages about, yes, I should get to make decisions for my life and I should have a say in how my life is proceeding. And also I should sit and wait around um, for him to decide what what our relationship was going to look like. Um, so one, there was kind of some anger towards people pushing me in that way. But then there was also kind of shame where I also felt like, oh yeah, my relationships, my my engagement's not real. He doesn't really want to be with me. And so it, it wasn't I knew it wasn't just external pressure, it was also internal pressure um, that it had that these things had to go a certain way. And so that was kind of motivated um, me thinking through heterosexual women's kind of competing messages that they that they receive about being empowered and also still playing by these quote-unquote rules of courtship. Um, And so that's kind of what started the project, thinking about heterosexual women and those competing tensions. Um, And then I wanted to see, um, I wanted to do the comparison group to heterosexual men. Um, This group also had a lot of in-group tensions about how to be a man, how to set the pace of the relationship, but also how not to come off as predatory. Um, and so that was interesting as well. Uh, and then I was also thinking about, um, we're seeing much more, um, visible LGBTQ population at that time, uh, much more now, but back when I was still thinking about the research is, um, 12 years ago. And so, um, Thinking about including in that at that time, I only included gay and lesbian men and women. Um, but then I went back into the field again and um, widened the call for LGBTQ. Uh, and so then the comparison was not just heterosexual men and women, but also heterosexual and LGBTQ practices. Um, and then the the focus on courtship came. In particular because um, I was there's a lot of changing norms. We have a lot of data that people are becoming more egalitarian. but we also know people um, face this kind of social desirability bias to say they want equality when maybe they're not that committed to it. And so courtship um, uh, will seem more like a preference to many people. Uh, so it's kind of a good way to look at the impact of these kind of cultural rules or instructions. Um, so we have a lot of people saying yes, they're egalitarian, but underneath it, they're still talking about how they believe that men and women are uh, fundamentally different. And so that's how I came to this research.
1: Excellent. And uh, these messages that uh, you talk about in terms of courtship patterns and what should happen for men and women how how are they communicated? How do we how do we as men and women learn these uh, gendered practices? Uh, or are they learned and in, in, through what process?
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, basically everywhere. So at least to, from my study, um, friends, family, media, and actual dating as well. So uh, their parents are telling them certain things. Um, and Not so much the dads. Dads were not particularly involved in talking to their children about how they should behave in relationship. But moms really were. Um, so they would get lessons from their moms, um, men, uh, heterosexual men in particular were told, they, they, they kind of received the fewest messages. Um, they're kind of just told to, uh, um, kind of get their life in, get their life in good shape because then they're, then they would be attractive to women. So make sure they have a good career, make sure they have a good education, they earn wealth, that kind of thing. Um, LGBTQ people, they got the most explicit messages. I'm actually not sure that they got the most explicit messages or whether they experienced them as the most explicit because they were the um, group that was kind of experiencing a contradiction between what their families were telling them and what their um, what they were feeling. Um, so they got a lot of messages about being very conventional. Um, so I I almost think that either they were picking up on the messages more or their parents were picking up on some level of nonconformity and thus emphasizing conformity more. Um, and then then heterosexual women, they got the kind of most uh, worrisome narratives from their moms, like be careful, um, don't put your all, you know, be careful, make sure you pick the right kind of man so you don't get held back. Um, so those were kind of some narratives about how to balance gender norms, but also, Um, personal, personal goals. Um, But also media, of course, um, are giving strong messages. And a lot of the uh, participants referenced, oh, Disney images um, or reading things like he's just not that into you or they mentioned the rules. So they're getting it from media images, movies, self-help books, uh, friends. A lot of them go to friends for advice. So if they go to a friend, I'm having this problem. Um, a lot of the, the advice from friends is very stereotypical. Oh, don't be too desperate. Don't have sex before the third date. Those kind of things. Um, and then also when they actually started dating, these things were reinforced. So I had one woman who thought, I know, I will, I'll make the first move. And she got shut down pretty hard, um, pretty, pretty rudely by the man. And she was like, "See, this is why this is why women shouldn't make the first move." Um, so it was kind of being reinforced in in many different in, from many different sides.
1: And uh, in 2015, there was a a huge Supreme Court case that that maybe uh, helped solidify and helped uh, with the mixed messages that LGBTQ were receiving in terms of how they are supposed to uh, carry out a a courtship pattern, a mating cra- pattern that is. Uh, um, uh, has a script that's pretty heteronormative. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how this court case Umber, uh Obergefell versus Hodges uh, created some uh, change in LGBTQ, uh, not LGBTQ, LGBTQ. In fact, uh, the uh, the norms were the norms, or maybe the practices that they carried out in in mating practices.
0: Sure. Well, I can speculate because my research finished up before this. Okay. Yeah, so I was actually um, on an airplane coming back from finishing my final interview um, when this uh, decision was handed down. Um, So there's actually better research than mine to speak to this particular um, question. But so we have this decision that gives the right to same-sex couples to marry, and this brings up these kind of questions of assimilation um, uh, versus resistance, Right in in the LGB, well, I'm going to say LGBTQ. I had trans people; they all identified as queer, so I kind of put them under this umbrella so that of of um queer, um so I could show the comparison was by sexual orientation rather than, um, gender. But, um, so th- where I was conducting my research was San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so there was already. Um, at least in California, they had the right to marry. Um, but one of the things that came up in my research is I tapped into a much more um, radically queer uh, network, I believe, than what I think other people doing similar research have found. So a huge percentage, I don't know, huge, a large percentage of my group identified as queer rather than gay or lesbian or bisexual. Um, and so they had a much more um, kind of counter-normative orientation to marriage. So this, um, this case passing wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was symbolic, I would assume. But again, I can't say how they would actually react to it. Um, so I'm sure it was symbolically important, but they, most of the people I talked to were not interested necessarily in getting married. In fact, there was kind of a strong resistance to getting married. Uh, they wanted rights, uh, but they didn't want to have to go through marriage to get particular rights. Uh, and, and the reason for that was that they, they believed that marriage is a constraining, a hierarchical institution that they wanted no part of. Uh, they wanted um, relationships in which were much more flexible, um, egalitarian, and they felt that could not be achieved with this kind of heteronormative model of what relationships should look like that wasn't across the board. I did have some people who were, who were getting married, who were interested in getting married. Um, and kind of were like, yes, cause we deserve recognition. We deserve rights and we deserve this, this kind of stamp of approval, um, that says, yes, your relationship is valid. Um, so I think the big thing with this, um, Obergefell case is that there's, It becomes much harder to maintain a focus on how marriage is a constraining institution as you get kind of admitted into this institution. And so the worry is that people will become, LGBTQ people will become maybe more conservative as a result of it, um, kind of falling into this particular model rather than the creativity which they had been bringing to romantic relationships. And so I can't speak to that, but I will direct listeners to um, Abigail Okobach's work, and she's doing some really great work on this topic.
1: And uh, Dr. Lamont, one of the things that uh, that you brought up there is that, yes, it's a symbolic uh, event that took place in time, uh, but there has been multiple symbolic events that have occurred throughout, uh, uh, throughout time and space. Uh, traditional courtships uh, early on were patterns in which uh, men came to uh, the front porches of the uh, person they were courting, women, uh, and uh, they would talk to the parents and eat dinner with them. Uh, but the advent of the uh, of the motor vehicle uh, early on in the re- and it becoming readily available to a large portion of the population in the nineteen twenties resulted in a change in these mating practices. Uh, how so?
0: So, it moves it more into the public sphere. Um, and so, this is actually a, an instance where um, something starts in the working class and moves more broadly to the population. Um, so, these were groups that did not have space in their home to um, kind of hold these meetings, right? And so, they wanted, they are moving into the public sphere. And then, as you said, the automobile also enables that as well. Um, and we see women moving, um, at least, you know, white, um, upper middle class women moving into the public sphere to some extent in certain ways. And so, um, kind of puts pressure on, on the institution also, but in the process, what happens is the, there's a kind of a shift in control from women and their families to men, um, because men are the ones who are, who have the automobiles and have the, um, money um, to pay for the dates, and so it kind of shifts that balance of power. And I think, um, I guess, more interestingly, for my research, one of the biggest um, shifts that the people I talked to were speaking about was hookup culture. So this comes later, um, but kind of the advent of hookup culture is what's shaping their their college experience, their high school and college experience, and thus shaping their perspective on how dating has changed. Um, and so that's also seen as a male dominated practice, um, whereby men kind of get to set the terms. Men are privileged by that, where women are, um, kind of facing much more, um, negative repercussions, um, if they're seen as to quote unquote, too promiscuous. Um, and then, um, I'm trying to think what else I wanted to say about that. And, and also that they're kind of feel that they're not supposed to um, make the first move. Um, they're not supposed to express interest for fear of seeming desperate. These kinds of things are the shift that's re- that really seem to be shaping the people I spoke to.
1: And that also uh, results in a transition of, of when mar- the, the scripts associated with when marriage occurs, right? From uh, dating early on and then marrying by maybe age 18, 19, 20, to now waiting until uh, mid to late 20s and early 30s as a result of of hooking up and attending college, and for, particularly for men, the script was to find a job and to have a house ready for his wife before he, he gets married.
0: Right. Yeah. So, um, sorry, you mean the script of the men in my book? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Right. So this we have this very long, drawn-out courtship period at this moment of time because um especially with this group. So the people I'm interviewing, they're all college educated, um, they're not all from the upper middle class. about forty percent are from the working class. But as they move in through through college, they come, they're kind of getting the same norms, getting the same messages that the upper middle class is getting about this delayed entry into marriage. And so, Yeah, a lot of them are not thinking about marriage until late 20s, early 30s. Um, And so this is both for heterosexual men and heterosexual women, is this idea that they should be setting their own lives up first. Um, So for men, it was to make them a more stable, attractive partner. So finish up your career, or sorry, finish up college, um, enter your career, get stable in your career potentially buy a home. That's a little tough. This is the Bay Area. Not sure how many of them are actually positioned to buy homes. Um, but starting to move into kind of more stability, um, for, for heterosexual women, it was the same, get set up, um, finish your, finish your, um, Uh, don't settle down too soon because what if you have to move across the country for your education? You don't want some some man holding you back from those opportunities. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was much more about don't let a man hold you back from those opportunities. Um, for heterosexual men, it was this will make you attractive to a woman. So it was a different message that was being received, but it still resulted in the same thing, which is this longer period before people are looking to start settling down.
1: And you make a good point uh, when you asked me whether I was talking about, uh, about the participants of your study. Uh, the script varies by, uh, by race, ethnicity, economic standing, and sexual orientation, right?
0: Yes, it does to some extent. Um, I, I really struggled with this, actually, um, when, I was doing, when I was doing my research, because I didn't find as many differences as I had maybe expected to find. Um, And I think it's because of who I sampled. Um, So I did have um, racial diversity. I did have some class background variation. Um, But it seemed to be being washed out. Um, The scripts seemed to be the same. I didn't hear a lot of difference between those groups. And I think it was because they were now becoming, they had gone through college and they were becoming positioned um, decently well economically. Uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: What would be interesting is to see what the differences would be socio-geographically so looking from rural to urban or from uh, the Bible Belt to the coastal area.
0: Sure. And I think there would be some some big differences there. Um, I can, well, my next research project will be investigating some of that, um, but I can say anecdotally from talking to my students, at least, you know they're going through college, um, but they're still very much focused on um, on getting married right out of college, um, so using college as a time to find their future partners and then get married maybe one or two years out, and it seems pretty common in their in their networks because, you know, they add me on Facebook and I can see that they're going to they all have their baby showers within the same few months and then they all have their weddings within the same few months in their friend network, um, so I think there's much more focus on settling down much earlier, um, and and college becomes the courtship period, but. Really, with one partner, not this level of dating around. Although I'm sure, of course, there's there's still variation.
1: The middle upper class population that you interviewed for this for this study, uh, what were the benefits for women in waiting in marriage uh, as compared to, uh, I guess, the men and, and the benefits that uh, uh, that they had in waiting for marriage?
0: So women face. Um, kind of the self-development imperative. So, focus on the self, build careers. Um and so the benefits they have in 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 waiting for marriage that maybe other groups don't is that they can expect to be able to build careers, um to be able to have the resources and personal freedom to date around. When they f- decide they are ready to settle down, um and this is kind of contrary to some of, you know, popular media. Um ways of talking about this group of women, which is, oh, they're so desperate. They get to their late 20s, early 30s, and they're panicking. They don't have any partners out there. They're worried they're not going to find a partner. That is not what I found. Um, What I found was that they felt pretty secure that when they were ready to settle down, quote unquote settle down, that they were going to have a partner and that that partner was going to be a good partner. Um, So by good, someone who is ambitious, um, someone who... Uh, they didn't necessarily say earner, um, but someone who's ambitious, someone who is going to be able to pull their weight in the relationship. So they felt pretty secure that they, that that would be, if that by delaying marriage, it, they wouldn't be missing out on having partners, that they would be able, that they wouldn't be kind of struggling economically either because they felt their careers were going to work out. Um, and Quite frankly, I can follow some of them and they did, they're doing well. Um, and, and so they're going to see returns on their investment in themselves. They're going to see career returns on their investment in themselves. They're going to see romantic return, relationship returns on that investment in themselves. Uh, because the, the men that they're seeking to date want these types of women. They don't want women who are interested in staying at home. They want women who are also ambitious. And so they could see that by waiting, by investing in themselves, while their partner, their future partner, is also doing the same, that they're going to be able to consolidate their class privilege. Um, They're going to bring two large incomes to the table, and they're going to also, because of those incomes, because of they waited for marriage, um, because they have a kind of all their ducks in a row. They're going to feel secure in their marriage. That marriage is going to be more stable as a result. And so, this isn't necessarily the case among lower income people in the country that if they get married later, somehow they're going to suddenly have a lucrative career. That might not be the case. Um, And so, that's where these um, benefits pay off for the upper middle class. Um, And then, men too, um, they can feel the same way. They can feel confident that their jobs are going to, um, uh, that their, their education is going to pay off in the terms of career rewards and then they'll be a, a strong marriageable partner.
1: And the story that they're telling is uh, includes a lot of the coded language that uh, you mentioned throughout the book that parents would use in in communicating the expectation that they have for their sons or daughters. Uh, could you talk a little bit about coded language and and, and what that meant for uh, dating practices?
0: Yeah. If I recall, I don't, I'm trying to remember, I don't recall that the heterosexual man received as much of that coded language. It was much more from the mothers to the heterosexual women. That was where I was hearing a lot of it. Um, And, and so it wasn't like, Oh, you need to marry for money. Uh, You need to marry someone from who went to a particular type of school who has a particular type of career. Um, It was much more focused on saying words like ambitious um well educated hard working compatible um so there's a lot of like well i just if if he's not ambitious if he doesn't have a professional career i'm just not sure he's going to be compatible with you because you're so ambitious um so the focus was really very much on um kind of these these match a matched pair of of strongly ambitious people who are both very focused on their careers. Um, And and this was kind of hiding the narrative of don't date someone from the working class. Um, Don't date someone who hasn't gone to college. Um, There was not a lot of talk about race. Um, The only parents who were very explicit talking about race were um, Asian, Asian American parents. They were very explicit um, about their preferences. And, um, so Asian American men's parents, um, uh, they focused on wanting the men to marry Asian women. Um, and for Asian women, they were told don't marry Asian men. Because this is going to be this group's going to be too too traditional for you. They're going to want you to be a traditional wife, and that is not what you want, and that is not what we want for you. And um, so that was not coded. That was very explicit. Um, But I didn't hear that from other groups, other other racial and ethnic groups. Yeah. So
1: the coded messages maybe uh, as at least inspires maybe uh, what goals are had of middle, the middle upper class men, the women uh, who are part of the study, as well as the LGBTQ and trans population. What, what exactly was their goal in relationship and regards to relationships?
0: So the goal for heterosexual women was, I'll start by saying that all of them said they wanted egalitarian relationships. Um, so, but they kind of, uh frame them slightly slightly differently um so for the heterosexual population, it was very much that they would have a balance balanced career and family, and that um their partners would be doing the exact same thing, so they wanted to um, um kind of. Have Be very focused on their careers, get their career in line, be a good earner, both sides, and then um, get married, have families, and have those families be kind of a balance, have, have a balance in those families, uh, whereby both men and women would be contributing to the child care, to the housework um, equally. So that, so both parents wouldn't, no one would have to stay at home. There's a pretty strong um, negative feeling towards stay-at-home mothers. Uh, stay-at-home fathers was not brought up much at all. So I did ask the question, oh, you know, would you be comfortable? I asked the women, would you be comfortable with a stay-at-home father? No, no I don't think I would be comfortable with that because he wouldn't be comfortable with that. Um, he, he, men need things going on. Uh, and then heterosexual men, same thing. No, I would not be comfortable with a stay at home wife. The, they would rely on me too much. That would put too much pressure on me. Also, the compatibility thing comes up again. Uh, there was an assumption that someone who wanted to stay at home was not going to be compatible because they're not going to be, inte- the assumption was they would not be intellectually interesting. What would they bring to the table in terms of conversation? So there was a negative push against that. So it was very much about everyone having their career. And then um, balancing childcare and, and house and housework. Um, it was less fleshed out than you might imagine, which I think is one of the reasons they run into problems. Um, so most of them did not have kids at this point, which is where a lot of push comes to shove. Um, so they don't have kids. And so they're kind of speculating on what they might do. And so they don't necessarily have firm plans. Um, so, oh, yes, we'll be equal. We'll divide it equally. And that'll be fine um and and we'll hope it works out
1: um you wrote it you oh. wrote in the book that the lesbian gay, and bisexual um interviewees uh sort of met the status quo uh whereas the trans people sort of countered this capitalistic uh normative that uh a man goes to work wife uh, uh stays at home or work but uh yeah how trans ca- sort of counter that capitalism is that is that right
0: no, I I don't think that's totally right. Actually, okay. um, So I I think that it didn't fall as neatly along those lines as as kind of you're saying. Okay. Um, so I do think more broad. It was more broad within the LGBTQ population than just the trans um, mm-hmm. people I interviewed. Um, so yeah, to speak to to speak to that group's goals, it was much. So they said egalitarian as well, um, but they maybe had more of a sense of what that um, some of the challenges they may face in in meeting that but I think it was I think what was going on was that there was just so much focus on not being like heterosexuals <laughs> um, I don't we don't want to be like that that really sustain them um, throughout the throughout the dating and relationship practices because they had something to kind of come back God, I, I'm trying to think about how this is playing out, but it, it was something that they could kind of hold on to as their guiding, as their guiding light in a way. Um, so um, it was much more focused on not have not fitting a model. Maybe that's the best way to say it. It was we don't want to fit a particular model there. It should not be one. Um, elevated model for what relationships should look like. So we have to be very attentive to consistently rethinking that model, consistently um, looking at our relationship and reevaluating it. So a lot of the heterosexual couples kind of it's almost like they they got in a rut in a way. So they start to create a bicycle. Path right, and then it becomes the hard to get out of that particular path. Um, the LGBT, LGBTQ population that I talked to very much was like, "Oh, sh- oh, there's a there's a rut starting. We need to immediately think through why there's a rut starting and how we can get out of that rut, and we have to reevaluate that." Um, so much more focused on communication, Con- like constant communication was the was the. Um, was the narrative that was that was provided to me. So bring it up, bring it up, talk through it, check in, check in with your partner. Is everything okay? Okay, it's not working for me. We have to reevaluate. We have to um write the ship in a, in a way. Um and then flexibility as well. So flexibility in terms of, yeah, the relationship may change, um, but we, we have to be able to move with that. Um, so we don't just have This is what our relationships look like, is going to look like, and this is what we're going to stick to no matter what. Things will come up in life and we need to be able to maneuver through those things. Um, So one thing that came up quite a bit for this group that I don't, I'm trying to think if anyone brought it up in the heterosexual population, I think one person brought it up, was um, having um, open relationships potentially or having a poly relationship. Um, and so a lot of the people I interviewed in the LGBTQ population were very open to having, um, to not being monogamous basically. Uh, and so they would, um, most of them were were kind of monogamous at the time of the interview, but basically saying, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not quote unquote wedded to that idea. Um, if something comes up, we should talk about it. We should reevaluate. And so there was some some people that I talked to that, oh, I want an open relationship. They would open up the relationship. They would be having an open relationship for a while. Then maybe it's not working out for someone. So then they would close the relationship um, and then maybe think, okay, but down the line, might we might open the relationship back up. So it was not kind of set in stone in that same way. Um, so and that's you, where that flexibility was coming in. And so there was a real focus, yeah, communication and flexibility.
1: And do you think that this flexibility might be a Uh, might be an outcome, a consequence of the institutionalization of heterosexuality throughout society?
0: In the sense that they're trying to resist that? Correct. Yes, I do think that. So I think a lot of what was going on was positioning themselves in opposition to the, exactly right, the institution of heterosexuality. Um, because they're very explicit about that. We don't want to be like that. Here are all the negatives that come from that type of relationship. Um, so, you know, I start my chap my chapter on LGBTQ dating, um, saying um, a lot of the, a lot of the people weren't like, Oh no, I was uh, this is so hard. It's so hard to be queer. This is so terrible. It was quite the opposite. It was how terrible to be heterosexual. That is the saddest existence. Um, they get trapped in their lives and they have no other pathways out. Um, this is this is their only option that you it was especially fo- focused on heterosexual women. felt very sorry for heterosexual women and their relationships. They're just gonna sit around, talk to their girlfriends, be desperate for a relationship, then they're getting married, then they have to sacrifice all this stuff for this person, then they have a kid and they have to sacrifice everything for their kid, Um, and as the person said, end this way until death. Um, And so the focus was much more on um, kind of having a more expansive life um, and having many more uh, sites of fulfillment and um, not kind of getting trapped in that per- one particular way of living life. And so the goal is, yes, flexibility. What can we do differently? How can we keep our lives uh, flourishing?
1: And what, was it, what were their thoughts on, chi- on having children?
0: They were very mixed. Um, <clears throat> so if I recall correctly, only a third were pretty committed to having children. Um, so the majority did not want to have children. Um, and I think this did reflect the fact that um, they were less committed to marriage, perhaps. I think there was something going on there that the the people who were more committed, the LGBTQ people who were more committed to marriage were the ones more interested in having kids. So there is still that strong norm that children should be had within a marriage. I do think that was coming up. Um, but for for the remainder, um, it was kind of a mixed bag. So some people were saying, sure, I would love to have kids. I value caregiving. Um, So it was a little different in the sense of, you know, this kind of liberal feminist narrative that caregiving isn't valuable. I I wasn't necessarily hearing that. Um, There was a sense that caregiving is a valuable thing, but that they don't have the resources to do it, Uh, that they face discrimination and they're not going to have kids if they can't make sure their kids are going to be well taken care of. So there was some of that. Um, There's also some of the sense that bringing kids on the planet is irresponsible to the planet. So um, that there's overpopulation and no, I'm not going to contribute to that. So you know what I would love to do? Have maybe a more community child rearing experience whereby I support my friends um, in their child rearing experiences. Um, So there's some of that. And then there was also just some, no, that's just, I just want my freedom. I just want to be able to enjoy my life. So, so it was a mixed bag.
1: So now I'm going to shift to um, the final question that I have in regards to uh, the book that you wrote. And that is how, how have dating practices changed in the 21st century and what do you see uh, the future of relationships to be?
0: Um. I always get asked what the future will be. And I wish I could answer that question. I'm not yeah, I wish sure. we sure. <laughs> I wish we had a
1: magic ball that we could just look yeah, into.
0: I'm always <laughs> like, I always kind of um, punt on that question. And I don't know what the future is. Um, I do think people are dating more as equals. I think that is um, a big one that we have seen. Um, so they are coming into their relationship with very equal experiences. And I think that can't help but have an impact moving forward. Uh, I think what we're seeing on some of these dating practices is is cultural lag. Um, so certainly there was quite a bit of, you know, um, well, men are just this way or, or or women are just this way. So there are really essentialist narratives about who men and women were from the heterosexuals. And so <clears throat> I think that is kind of dragging down some of the potential of um, The terms in which people are entering these relationships. So, um, but as people start to settle down later, as they have these, have these greater resources, um, I do, I do think there is some behind the scenes shifts taking part. So my book has kind of, I don't know if it's a negative message from the heterosexuals, but it isn't one of huge change. But I think that they, behind the scenes, maybe there is some sense that they do they're kind of hopeful for some change. Um, the heterosexual women, kind of busy in the background, trying to get the terms they want for their relationships. The heterosexual men, I do think they wanted more. I do think they wanted more equal relationships than maybe they had. I don't know that they wanted the burden of all the courtship norms that they were experiencing. I'm not going to give them a total pass. They were reinforcing a lot of norms, um, but I think there was. I think I see enough change in their narratives that I think we're moving somewhere good. Like it's slow. It's being dragged back by some of these norms. But I, I think those material changes are going to keep pushing us in a more progressive direction. Um, one thing that my book doesn't speak to is policy. You can't really create policy around dating. Um, but I do think that um, some of the other research showing that policy in the workplace and and policy supporting um, families will help um, so that we have these egalitarian couples. They will actually be able to enact their egalitarian goals um, rather than kind of fall back. So I'm seeing that happening. Um, I did not study much. So some of these people had done some online dating. I think probably online dating is one of the big stories moving forward. Uh, these, this group I interviewed, they're, they're around, I want to say how old they are right now. They're probably between 35 and 45 right now. So they're a little older, um, than maybe, I fe- I feel like some of them hit the wave of online dating, but some of them were already kind of, they were it was like, they were starting to settle down as online dating becomes more, um, less stigmatized, I should say so I didn't see a lot on online, I didn't see a lot of stuff on online dating, but I think I'm curious to see how online dating might impact this, these patterns going forward. Um, as a peer reviewer, I see other people's research on this and it's maybe not as hopeful as we might expect, um, that we're seeing some of the same patterns just replicated in, in online dating. Um, so, I don't, I, don't, I don't know where we go except for that I guess my focus really is on those policies that can help with work and family. And then hopefully that'll break down some of these assumptions about gender difference which will then um, break down some of these dating patterns even further. And so that we're not kind of replicating these norms over and over again.
1: And then changing the institution, changing the social structures, like uh, uh, more equal, beyond like the 70 cents to the $1, but making wages a lot more, uh, fair, uh, between men and women so that, uh, so that men, uh, are more able to be stay at home fathers or
0: things like that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Excellent. Uh, this was a, a, a really enjoyable read. I, uh, um, I found myself Reading the book and not being able to put it down, so uh, that's always a good sign. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, what are you working on now?
0: So you had mentioned some of the projects at the beginning, and so I'm I'm I... working on some of those projects. Um, I guess those are kind of kind of finishing up some of the work I've been doing. So um, yeah, I have one. One paper in progress on LGBTQ hookup culture. Um, Have another one comparing how um, heterosexual and gay and trans men do emotional labor within relationships. Um, And then kind of my bigger projects that I'm working on, um, one I'm looking at um, kind of looking at how plaintiffs, defendants, attorneys, and judges construct good parenthood in the context of of child custody cases. Um, and how this might promote gender inequality. I think there's an assumption that um, courts have become more equal in the sense that we don't have this favoring of the mother as the primary caregiver. Um, and and so most jurisdictions now operate from this presumption that joint custody between parents is ideal. Um, but at the same time, significant levels of judicial discretion guide that process. And so I'm really interested in... and, and From being a huge fan of Cecilia Ridgway's work, um, we know that discretion is often where um, um, we can allow these biases to come back in. So even if we create a more progressive policy or structure, uh, as soon as there's some discretion, people bring their biases back in. Um, And so I'm really interested in kind of understanding if this this discretion becomes a key driver of gender inequality by bringing in these biases and kind of reinforcing normative understandings of gender. Um, basically thinking, is there, a, is there potentially a higher standard for good motherhood than there is for good fatherhood in these, in these cases? And how then do, um, do all the actors kind of navigate and build an image of what good parenthood looks like? So I'm doing that, and then, so that's one project, and then uh, the other project is the one you mentioned, kind of looking at um, um, working class rural men and women, um, and how they are navigating their relationships, Um, and a lot of focus on um, working class families has been focused on um, how they're in crisis, right, and how being in crisis is kind of undermining the ability to maybe make more egalitarian relationships um, so I'm looking at at those who have stable working class jobs um, in, a, in a place that's kind of being that, that has an economic, I don't want to say recovery, but has other avenues besides. Um, so in particular, in our region, we have a big healthcare system, we have an educational system, we have tourism. Um, and so it's stabilizing a lot of those working class jobs. So I'm interested to see. But, but the women are the main breadwinners for the, many of these relationships. Um, and they're more likely to get college degrees. So I'm interested in exploring um, if that's if that's making relationship changes um, in terms of um, equality and how people are navigating them. Um, but also, they're also very, very religious and very conservative. So there's a tension there. And so that's what I'm starting to do now.
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a very uh, complex thing to
0: wrap the mind,
1: abro- mind around because there are so many different... Uh, Demographic characteristics that influence uh, the relationship, right? And then, of course, we have COVID going on, so um, there could always be a, a, an opportunity right now to look at how how that is impacting the dating and mating patterns of of, uh, of the reality we live in.
0: Right, and I actually don't know. I think there are some people doing research on that, but I have been asked that question, and i I, I don't know what's going on, to be honest.
1: As sociologists, we have more questions than answers,
0: yeah. I
1: think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you again for, for your time. This has been an episode of New Books in Sociology, again a channel on New Books uh, New Books Network.